God is calling us to make a difference. Every one of us have a sphere of influence in our lives, and he is calling every one of us to make our life count. There is a passion of love for God. This church is passionate, passionate about reading the Bible, about studying the Bible, about living the Bible. This church cares about family. It cares about children's ministry. It cares about youth ministry. This church cares about the family. It is passionate about worship. There is a hunger. There is a thirst. There is a desire to worship God. This church is passionate about missions. I'm telling you, whichever continent that you want to talk about, whichever people group that you want to talk about, this church has a passion to touch as many people's lives around this world and in this region as we possibly can. This church is passionate about caring for people, about having compassion, about giving themselves away to help people. I've never seen it to the depth of this church. God is calling every person to make your life count to be a part of something greater than you, to make a difference in the lives of other people, to recognize a need and stand up and meet that need. He is calling you. I'm going to ask this church to be who God has called us to be, to reach out and touch the lives of people in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, at our jobs that do not know Jesus Christ. We need to be woken up again to the truth that our friends that don't know Christ are headed to an eternity without Him. That our neighbors who do not know Christ are headed to an eternity without Him. That our classmates who never come to know Christ as Savior are headed to an eternity without God. And God is wanting to galvanize an inescapable call to love and lead all people to life change in Christ. Kathy and I have been and I've been gone for Kathy and I've been gone the last few weeks and we've been on vacation so much appreciate uh, you giving us the freedom to do that. Before I left, I was the lead pastor at Sugar Creek, and uh, I looked at the worship guide this morning, and I still am. Yay, God. So I'm back, and I just want to say thank you for giving us the privilege to be gone. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment, would you, that, that uh, tomorrow morning you wake up and you don't wake up in your bed. You wake up in a place you don't even know where you are. And you don't know anyone around you. And no one around you knows you. And you don't even know you.
You don't know any of your history. You don't even know your name. It's called dissociative amnesia. And there are movie themes that are sort of made around that idea, but it actually happened to someone. His name is William Powell, and this is a picture of William Powell. On August the 31st, 2004, William Powell woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning in the parking lot of a Burger King in Atlanta. He does not know how he got to the Burger King, how he got to the parking lot. He does not know. He didn't know anybody around him. Nobody knew who he was. He had no identification. He had no car anywhere in the vicinity, and he did not know his name. And you think, well, okay, give him a few hours, give him a few days, and it'll, it'll all start coming back. But it did not for 11 years. Yes, He didn't know his name. He knew nothing about himself. He had no social security number. He did have one. He didn't know what it was or what the... He had nothing. He named himself Benjamin Kyle. Just picked a name. And because he had no social security card, no number, he just lived hand to mouth doing whatever odd jobs he could. He washed dishes. He, he mowed lawns. For the next 11 years, he lived hand to mouth as Benjamin Kyle. And then in 2015, through a series of DNA tests, and it took a series, not just a couple of them, they finally figured out this guy is William Powell. You know what he discovered? He discovered he'd been a very successful businessman. He had a big bank account. He had a big savings account. He had a big retirement account. He'll never work another day of his life. If you want to know about his story, go to Wikipedia under Benjamin Kyle, but not right now. Not right now. What if this happened to you? What would you lose? Well, you would lose all your possessions. That's pretty obvious. You would, you would lose all the accomplishments of your life, or at least your knowledge about those accomplishments. But you would lose what's more important than anything. You'd lose all your relationships. All the relationships and the memories of those relationships of your past, all the relationships today, you would lose everything. It is possible for a church to get dissociative amnesia. For a church to forget who it is. It still meets, it still worships, it, it still prays and hears the Bible and says amen. But it is so drifted away from the call, from the purpose that God gave to it, it no longer remembers who it is. There is only one thing that is the difference between a church that is on fire for God and doing something great for God and is touching the lives of people around them and around the world and a church that is so apathetic and so passive and beginning to fall apart to its death. There's only one thing that's different. It's passion, passion for the call of God, passion and fervency for God's purpose and God's desire to be used in that church. And that's what I want to talk to you about today.
it is really possible that we could forget who we are. This is part of the reason when you're in the Old Testament from time to time, you're going to notice there's a king that steps up or there is a prophet that steps up and he says, I want to remind us where we have come from. Do you remember that our people came, they were slaves in Egypt and God brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and he has liberated us and he has called us to be his people and this is who we are. And all through the Old Testament, you will read that kind of thing happening. It is important every so often for a church to stop and go back to its roots and remember who we are. And that is the series we're beginning today, the series entitled, Who We Are. I want to talk about what is it that causes our heart to beat? What, what is it that is the reason we exist? What is it that we value in this church? Where are we going next? Mark, where are, what's the next chapter for Sugar Creek Baptist Church? Where are we headed? I want to talk to you about all of these things in this series entitled, Who We Are. So as I was working on this, felt so impressed by God. This is the direction that we needed to go beginning this Sunday. And I was praying about it and thinking through. It seemed to me, God, where do we start with this? And that became the first message. And I realized as I was praying through this that who we are does not begin with us. Who we are actually begins with God. And in fact, as I go through the Old Testament, ever so often you will read along the way through the Old Testament, you will read God say, I want to remind you of who I am and in light of who I am, who you are. One of the passages that actually does this, in essence, is in Isaiah chapter 6, and it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I've taught on this passage before in my 16 years here. But I taught it, I taught this passage from the concept of worship and what is worship about. I want to take this same passage of Scripture and I want to take it from a different perspective altogether. A different perspective of this. Who is God? And now that we see, then what does this mean about who we are? So would you do me a favor? I'm going to ask you if you'd stand with me. I want us to read this passage of Scripture out loud together. Could we do that? It's going to be right here on the screen. And I'm going to ask us to read this passage out loud together as we begin. And we're going to start with the word in, okay? Here we go. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today 
And we ask that you would take not just the words we've read, but the words that are beyond these words in the passage, and you would open our eyes. You would open our hearts, and that we would see in a fresh way, in a personal way, who you are, and in light of who you are, who we are, and what you want to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So who is God in relationship to the story that happens, the vision that happens with Isaiah? Well, the first thing that we see is that God is Isaiah's security. God is our security. Now, there's a key verse, a key part of the first verse that sometimes people just walk right past. They just read right over it and keep going. He begins in Isaiah 6.1 by saying this, In the year that King Uzziah died. Stop. Don't just keep going, but stop and look at what that actually means. Because if we overlook it, we'll miss a vital point. In the, king that, in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah had been the king of Israel for 52 years. Now, in a democracy, we're not used to that at all. In a democracy, we're used to uh, electing a president every four years. And if a president serves two terms, eight years, there are sometimes there is a president that serves even eight years, and when he's, he, he's gone, because it's all been he's thus far, but when he's gone, we, oh, I wish it could be another term. I wish it could be 12 years, because he had done such a great job. But there are other presidents in which we're thinking, when is the four years over? Or when is the eight years over? Even if he did a good job, I'm ready for somebody new. We're not used to this idea of 52 years, but Uzziah was the king for 52 years. And he was a good king. He was a godly man. He was a strong man. And he had led with wisdom and with courage, and he had, he had brought such stability to Israel. He became the symbol of all of Israel, of strength and protection and security. He had been the only king that Isaiah had ever known. And so when Uzziah died, Isaiah is brokenhearted. Isaiah is grieving it is in the midst of the grieving that this thing happens. Isaiah is brokenhearted because this man who had been his strength, he had been Isaiah's rock. His security was gone. I think we can understand that a little bit in our own lives because maybe there is someone that has been in your life a long time, someone that has been your rock, someone that you've loved Someone that has been the security of your life. Someone that you could always depend on, you could always go to. And now that person is gone. And the grief, the loneliness that comes with that, it knocks us off balance for a while, doesn't it? There is pain with that. That's where Isaiah was in this story. His heart was full of grief because Uzziah was dead. But in this vision, he discovered that God was not. 
Uzziah was gone, but God was here. You say, well, he's a prophet. Wouldn't you think he already knew that God was here? Sure, there are a lot of things you and I know about God mentally that we don't know in our heart. We don't know emotionally. We don't know experientially in our heart, though we know mentally. There are, we know God is near, but there is, a, there is something that happens differently when what is in our brain reaches our heart. And we understand God, God is here. People come and go, nations rise and fall, but our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible says in Psalm 18, verse 2, hear it, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my Savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He's my shield, the power that saves me, my place of safety. And God is saying this to you. Let me be your security. Don't just mentally acknowledge that I am your strength. Let me be your strength. Let me be your rock. Let me be your protector. Turn your heart to me. Let me be the strength of your life. There's something else that Isaiah experiences in the vision. God reigns over all. Isaiah sees the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up. Notice that God is not standing and pacing back and forth and wringing his hands. What do I do next? What do I do? I don't know what to do next. No, God is seated on the throne. Do you know why a king has a throne? Do you know what it means? It is the symbol of stability. He's not pacing back and forth. He is seated on the throne. It means that whole idea of a throne of a king. I got this. Sounds just like a man, doesn't it? I got this. I'm in charge I'm sovereign. That's what the throne represents. God is seated on the throne, and he is high and lifted up. High and lifted up means I have a perspective you don't have. He has the ability to see over the next hill, to see around the next corner. And God is saying to you and me through this vision, he is saying to, to Isaiah and us, he is saying, I've got this. I really know not just what's going on now. I know what's coming in your life. I know what's around the corner for you. You can trust me. You can trust me. I am your security. I'm your protector. I'm your rock. I'm the sovereign of your life. You don't have to be afraid. I got this. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. God can't be voted out because he was never voted in. He doesn't operate by public opinion. He is God. Sugar Creek Baptist Church, I want you to know there is a God on the throne, and it is our Lord God, Jehovah. He is on the throne, seated on the throne high and lifted up. He's 
got this so that when we are tempted to be afraid, we don't have to be afraid. When we're tempted to doubt, we don't have to doubt because God is God and he is seated on the throne. This is what God is showing Isaiah. There's a third thing. Not only is God the security, Isaiah, not only, God is saying, not only am I the sovereign, Isaiah, but third, that God is holy. Isaiah is experiencing all of this scene around him and the glory of it and, and the majesty of it and the train of his throne filled the temple, the scripture says. And while he is watching this, suddenly the seraphim began to call out. The seraphim are the angels that attend to the throne of God. And they began to cry out, and notice what they say in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. The Lord, earth is filled with his glory. The earth is filled with his glory. They were calling back and forth to each other. Can you imagine the volume? Can you imagine the, the, the power of the praise that they were giving out? In case you were not aware, last October, the Houston Astros won the World Series. I don't know. Maybe you didn't notice it. And during that whole postseason run, Kathy and I went to one of the games. We didn't get to go to the World Series, but we did go to one of the playoff games. We, we, were, we were high and lifted up ourselves. We, <laughs> we, but we were there, and, we, and it was with the Boston Red Sox, and, and there was not an empty seat in the whole stadium. They had the, the roof closed. If you've ever been in Minute Maid Stadium when the roof is closed and the entire place is packed, you know what I'm talking about. It didn't matter what the Astros did. There were screams and yells. If they got a hit, it was like the, the great, like we had just won the World Series. It was just crazy. It was just so much energy, so much volume. At one point, I think we scored a run, and the, the whole seating, we're talking concrete and steel, began to move underneath us. I mean, the volume was so amazing. It was the most electrifying game I had ever been to, but it won't hold a candle to heaven with all the seraphim and you and I gathered around the throne, and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the praise and the adoration to him. If we think the third service is loud, folks, did you know I said that in the first two services, and they died laughing because they talk about this service. You understand that, don't you? They talk about this service. There is nothing louder. There is nothing so wonderful, so amazing as being around the throne of God. And it's in that moment, in Isaiah's vision, that we discover the most important aspect of the nature of God. There are so many attributes to the nature of God. We understand that God is all-powerful. 
There is nothing God cannot do. We know he's omnipotent. But do you notice they do not yell, power, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. We know that God knows everything, that he is omniscient. But they don't yell that. We know that God is love. Could there be a greater force in all the world than the love of God? But they don't yell, love, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. They yell, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. The greatest attribute of the nature of God is His purity, is His holiness. The American culture loves the love of God and despises the holiness of God. The American culture loves the love of God, but it despises the whole idea of the holiness of God. Tell me about God's love, but do not tell me about His holiness. Don't tell me about His purity. But one day when this culture encounters a God high and lifted up, they will discover that He is a holy, pure, righteous God. So what does Isaiah experience? What is God wanting Isaiah to understand about him? That God is our security, that God is the sovereign you can trust Him, and that God is holy and pure. Now listen to me. Only when we see God for who He is can we see ourselves for who we are and be rescued. It is so important to grasp this. Isaiah sees the God of the temple. Look at what it says, Isaiah 6, 4 4 and 5. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. This is the next second after encountering this holy God, the next second. Isaiah does not say, wow, or boy, I didn't expect this. Wow, look at God. No, the very next second out of Isaiah's mouth is, Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What's happening? Have you ever been in a a dark, 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 dark tunnel? And the only thing you could see was just a small little pin light. There, here's a picture of a tunnel, but really, I couldn't find the tunnel that I was really looking for, but it gives you a little bit of a feel at least. I was thinking of a tunnel that is so far, and it's just a pin light. And if you think about what I'm describing, if you are in a tunnel like that is so dark that you cannot see, but just a pin light, you can't see the hands, your hands in front of you. And you certainly cannot see your shirt. You can't see your clothes. And all you can do is maybe hold on, touch the sides of the tunnel, and just feel your way trying. You know your only uh, ability to survive is to get to that light. And you are hoping that you don't fall off somewhere as you go. And just work your way closer to the entrance of the tunnel. 
And you know what? When you get closer to the entrance of the tunnel, you know what you'll see? You'll see this, this next picture. First of all, the light will grow larger. The light will grow larger. But here's something else. You will now, before you get there, you'll be able to see your hands. Hey, there's my hands. And be able to look. Oh, wow. Man, my shirt is so dirty. I didn't even know. It is so dirty in this place. I'm just, my shirt's dirty. My blue jeans are dirt. My hand, my arm, I'm filthy. But you don't know it until you get closer to the plate, to the light, to the point that you can now see yourself. This is exactly what's happening to Isaiah in this moment. He experienced the glory of God. And when he saw the glory, the holiness of God, suddenly he was able to see the truth about himself. Not the made-up stuff, that, not the image that we try to show other people, but the truth about himself. How you know that you truly have encountered God is that you see the truth about yourself. You see the sin of yourself. The first words that comes out of his mouth, woe is me, I am a sinful man. You know you've encountered God when you begin to see the dirt, when you begin to see the truth about yourself. And you know what when Isaiah did? He didn't make excuses. He didn't blame someone else. He got on his knees and repented, confessed his sin, and repented before God. The key to being healed is to know you're sick. The key to being cleansed is to admit that you're dirty. So notice what happens then in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth. This is a live coal. He touched my mouth, and instead of burning... He touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. At Isaiah's confession and repentance, God dispatched seraphim. And the seraphim, this angel, went to the altar The altar is the place of sacrifice. The altar is the place of atonement. The sacrifice is to atone for sin. And this angel takes a live coal and he brings to Isaiah the atonement of his sin. The atonement from the altar comes and cleanses Isaiah's sin. The cross of Jesus Christ was actually an altar. The cross of Jesus Christ was an altar, and He was the sacrifice on that altar. And it was the blood of Jesus Christ that bought the atonement, the payment for the sin, to to have the cleansing from the sin. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that bought our atonement. If you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior too. Your story is very much like Isaiah's. It's your story. It's a little bit different. It's yours, but the same result has happened. The Bible says that God sent His Son, Jesus, to come to the earth and to die 
to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, to rise again from the grave. God is pursuing you. He wants you. He loves you. But He is a holy God. And you and I, in our sin, cannot approach the presence of a holy God on our own. There had to be an altar. There had to be an atonement. The cross was the altar. Jesus was the sacrifice. His blood was the atonement for our sin. And God says, I love you. I want you. But you must come through my son. You must come through the finished work, the, the payment that my son gave for you. There was a day and you're in my life. If you have come to know Christ as Savior, there's a day in your life that you came to see God in His holiness, in His love for you and His holiness and righteousness and the sin of your own heart. And you confess that sin and you ask forgiveness and you came not in your own goodness, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that moment when you do, when you, when you did, you came to know Christ as Savior. Something amazing happened in your life. And he describes it in John chapter 1 and verse 12. And he says this, To all who believed in Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you're... you're you're a child of God. You are a child of God. I'm a child of God. We are brothers and sisters and part of the same family, all of us who know Jesus as Savior. Amen? We're part of the same family. Red and yellow, black and white, we are all precious in His sight. And all of us are one family. He has not just saved us, but He has also called us to a mission. Notice what happens in the story. Here is Isaiah. He has saved him. And notice what happens in verse 8. And then, the very next second, and then, I heard the voice of the Lord, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? It's the very next thing that happens, the very next second. As soon as Isaiah is, his sin is atoned for, God says, and whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. The moment Isaiah was cleansed, he was called. The moment you were cleansed, you were called. And the only appropriate response to the grace of God in your life is to say yes to the call. Now listen to me. You aren't just saved. He didn't just want you to be saved. He also wanted to send you. You aren't just saved. You are also sent. This is what I want us to grab hold of today. Do not miss this point. God never intended for you and I to be saved, and now I feel so much better about God. I really like being around all these Christians, and it's great, and living this Christian life, and it's wonderful. That is not what God intended. God intended 
that once we came to know him, that we now understood we are also sent by him. We have a mission. We've been called by him. There are people that you know. There are family members and extended family members and work associates and classmates and next-door neighbors and people all around you. And everyone within our path, God intends for you and I to be a part of these people coming to know him. We're not just saved. We're also sent. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You're not just saved. You've been sent. Notice what Isaiah does. The moment he understands this, the moment he grasps, I'm not just saved. I'm sent. Notice what he does in verse 8. Isaiah replies, here am I, Lord, send me. i got to tell you, I'm stunned by it. I would have thought he would have said, look, give me the details and I'll get back to you. I'll think it over. I'll get it figured out. And if it works out, yeah, I'll get back. Do you realize that he didn't even know the nature of it? He didn't even know the difficulties. He didn't know the cost of it. He didn't care. Despite my inabilities, in spite of my pain and my barriers, the answer is, if you call me, the answer is yes. Here am I. Send me. Now tell me what it is you want me to do. This is the vision of Isaiah. So how does it apply to us? It's where we start. Our God is our security, our sovereign and the Holy One. And He has shown us our sin and atoned for that sin and brought us into relationship to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. But He did not just save us. He sent us. Who Sugar Creek Baptist Church is is this. We understand that He is our Sovereign, the Holy One. We understand He is our Savior. And we, by faith, have received Him into our heart. And we've understood that we were not just saved, we were sent. And now, God, what do you want us to do? Where do you want us to go? We don't even care what the cost is. We don't care what the demands are. Here am I, send me. Is this who we are? Is this who we are? Here am I. Send me. There are some in this room, and maybe you're saying, look, I've never, I've never understood this. I've never even understood what it meant to be saved. I didn't understand the sin in my life. I didn't understand the atonement of Jesus. I want to know this Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I want you to, too. In just a few moments when the service is finished, right through the center doors and across the short foyer, there's a room called Next Step Center. Our ministers will be there. We'd love to spend one-on-one -on -one time with you. How can I know Jesus? We can help you. And there's some of you that are visiting our church today, and there's a sense in your heart, I, I just feel like this is my church. This place just feels like home. How could I make that, that to be true? Right through the center doors, across the short for you, the Next Step Center, come and talk to one of our ministers. I want to be a part of Sugar Creek. 
But for most of us in this room, it is to remember we've not just been saved. We've been sent with a mission. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Let's pray. Father, I pray today as we work through in our own hearts, who are we? Oh, God, I pray for revival among us. I pray that you would give us a fresh view of you in your holiness. I pray that you would move among us in a powerful way. Accomplish your will in us. God, there is only one difference between a church that is alive and powerful and reaching people and making an impact and a church that is apathetic and passive and coming apart. It is the passion for the call. Oh, God, renew that passion in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.